Great. Okay. Well, welcome back to the Armchair Trader podcast. And on the podcast today, we have Nitesh Shah, Head of Commodities Research at Wisdom Tree, um, who is joining us to discuss all things commodities markets. He has been on the podcast before, um, but we thought it would be a good idea to get him back on just to catch up on what's been going on in the commodity space over the summer. Um, We're going to be looking at a number of different markets, um, including the usual favorites with traders. Um, And uh, I thought we would kick off um, talking about the energy markets. But um, firstly, welcome to the podcast, Nitesh. Thank you for having me back on again. I thought we'd start with the popular one. I mean, this is this is the oil market. And certainly from my experience working in the in the CFD space, that was the contract that used to get all the volume from traders. It's certainly the the favorite one. Um, Oil. I mean, my impression of, of covering oil over the last uh, six months has been that it's uh, um, my impression is that it's turning into a little bit of a tug of war between on the one side, you've got China, which is a major consumer of crude oil, where the economy there is, as far as I can see, definitely in trouble. And uh, that's creating a bear case for oil. But if you set yourself up on a, on a sort of China oil bear trade, uh, you're always going to be caught out by the Saudis, by OPEC, by Russia, who will just say, hey, we're going to cut, cut oil production, um, sometimes out of schedule, um, out of an OPEC meeting. And, um, and then all of a sudden, the, the price rallies. Uh, so we're seeing a little bit more um, what I would call strategic volatility in, in oil markets at the moment. But what's your, what's your impression of it? Yeah, I think you've got some great observations there. And um, when it comes to oil, it's it's a strange commodity because a good 45% of uh, production is controlled by OPEC and its partner countries. So they have a very meaningful impact on uh, on prices and on supply-demand balances. And it's been very clear that um, Saudi Arabia in particular um, wants oil prices around the $90 region. And why is that? Well, mainly because that's roughly where its fiscal break-evens are. And what I mean by fiscal break-evens is what is the price of oil that its government needs to be able to meet its government expenditures, mainly social expenditures, uh, with uh, with its revenues, you know, tax and mainly uh, oil-driven uh, revenues that, that come feed through from Saudi Aramco. Saudi Aramco on its own, um, you know, if you're just looking at it as an independent company, yeah, it could break even with oil prices as low, below $50, um, but the government needs something closer to 90 And that's why it's been so keen to keep uh, prices uh, that much higher. Uh, other OPEC countries have maybe even higher fiscal break-evens, um, but it's unrealistic that they'll ever get there because that will push oil prices to um, a, 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 a place where it's inflicting global pain uh, and they will set on certain global recession and that will uh, damage the demand. So, you know, OPEC has got that vested interest uh, for around that $90 and with Saudi Arabia being the largest producer, uh, the one with the most spare capacity and therefore the most um, muscle to flex uh, within that organization is keeping at that level. But you're right that the, you know, um, the demand side of the equation is uh, a little questionable. Um, if you look at um, 2023, of the growth in oil demand has come from China. 
that's a huge number for a country that is going through economic pain. Now, a lot of its oil consumption is driven by, um, you know, the fact it's taking in crude, processing it and sending it to other parts of the world. Um, so rest of the world strength matters. But if China weakens a lot more, then that demand part of the equation becomes a little bit more questionable. And I think that's what OPEC keep picking on when they keep um, in justifying why they're keeping the markets tight and restricting supply. They're always pointing towards the weakness in, in uh, potential weakness in demand uh, coming from China. China has been stimulating its economy recently. Um, and if you look through the last couple of months, almost every couple of days, it's making some sort of stimulus announcement. They're all small and very piecemeal. It hasn't come up with any big bazooka like it normally does in the most weakening cycles in historically over the last you know, 30 odd years. Um, this time around is different. They're doing lots of small targeted things. In accumulation, they're all accumulated together, it's meaningful, but nothing really ever grabs a headline um, because it, they're all uh, very, very small individually. But we are starting to see um, that strategy bear fruit. Um, if you look to the data points from the last couple of weeks, we've seen uh, purchasing managers indices from China um, rise above 50 um, for two months consecutively, actually. Um, so that's, um, you know, 50 is the demarcation between contraction and expansion. Uh, we've seen uh, industrial production uh, data rise and uh, uh, beat, you know, consensus, consensus expectations. Uh, total so social financing, so aggregate financing to the real economy, uh, has picked up after a couple of uh, bad months. Uh, uh, it's picked up quite substantially. And retail sales are up as well. So all the indications from a macro standpoint is, is that it's working, but we don't have that big bazooka. And the worry is that these small piecemeal stuff could fizzle out uh, over, over time as well. So a little bit of risk on the, on the demand side, but I feel on the supply side, Saudi's always ready there, uh, and uh, Russia is a willing partner. It's um, ready to cut back on supply to keep it at that sweet spot of 90. One of the areas where we saw supply expansion while OPEC was contracting was from the US, and US is the biggest uh, oil producer in the world. Um, and it was expanding oil while its rig counts were declining. But over the last couple of months, it's actually seen its supply decline as well, in line with its rig count. So that, that little magical trick it was, it was performing, somehow expanding production with less rigs, um, has, has come to an end as well. It, it, I mean, it's interesting because looking at the oil chart, um, you know, oil's been in a relatively bullish phase since July, and uh, certainly Saudi was successful in pushing it up past $90 a barrel um, in September. Um, and then it's been trading, uh, you know, around about the 95 mark. But then just recently, it's really seems to have fallen off a cliff. Um, and, and we're now, uh, you know, at, at the time of recording, we're at around $84 for Brent crude. What's causing that? Is it is it just bad data from China? And, and do we therefore expect that if this continues, if it drops below $80, then Saudi's going to like tighten the taps again? Yeah, I think what's happened over the last week is we've had that massive bond sell-off. Um, bond yields have risen substantially, and there's lots of fears about what that means for the global economy. Are we seeing 
um, you know, the makings of the next recession really uh, coming to play. And I think there's a lot of fear right now that demand um, could be could be a lot weaker. Um, and and I you know, and I think we're heading into a period of really uncertainty. I mean, what we're seeing is uh, essentially a, a bear steepener in, in the in the bond yield curve, right? So, um, you know, the the the, the curve is becoming less inverted, but not because short rates are going up, which was what you normally find in in steepness, is because um, it's because of movements at the, at the, at the, at the uh, sorry short rates normally go down, causing that steepening. But right now we're seeing the longer end going up, and that's rarely happened before, um, and that's creating huge amounts of uncertainty. I feel I think that right now. People are worried about uh, the demand part of the picture. This longer, higher for longer narrative um, is is keeping people a little bit worried about whether central banks will, uh, or you know, of developed economies will push uh, their economies respectively over the edge. Um, there's relatively few experiences of soft landings, even though we all seem to be, um, you know, liking the idea of that concept. Um, there are relatively few examples of that. Um, and so I think people are just a bit more worried about um, you know, acceleration into, into into recession, and that's caused that quite you know um, quite substantial ten dollar um, you know, de- decline in, in oil prices in, in in the span of about a week. Moving on to the gold price, because then again, gold is the other one a lot of traders follow. Um, that's not been having a good time either. That that that's been dropping. Um, I, I know we discussed this on our last uh, podcast. Um, and you get a lot of gold bulls in the market who who keep talking about how it's going to go to two thousand dollars and three thousand dollars, and this never seems to happen these days. <laughs> what 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 are you seeing in the gold market? Yeah, so gold, um, you know, it wasn't doing so bad uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, in fact, you know, when we saw the extreme bond headwinds and dollar appreciating uh, quite substantially, um, gold was holding steady. And but just in the last week or so, it, it's capitulated. It's it's succumbed to those pressures of um, you know higher bond yields and 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 an appreciated dollar. Um, now, when it comes to gold, um, a couple of observations we've had is that institutional markets have been largely shunning the metal. I mean, we haven't seen huge flows into, uh, you know, we've seen outflows from e- e- exchange-traded commodities um, and not, not any meaningful inflows. Um, if you look at um, speculative positioning in futures markets, they're also moderating uh, quite a bit. Uh, but um, if you look at some of the retail markets um, across the world, um, they're looking extremely strong. Um, if you look to Turkey, for example, a country that's had, you know, both political and economic um, uh, disruptions over the course of the last year, um, they had to even ban oil, uh, gold imports for a while because the demand was so strong. The central bank of Turkey was had to provide that liquidity into the market, was selling gold to meet local demand. Uh, but it's not just Turkey where you know you see that. Uh, uh, political economic uh, issues. Um, China, uh, we're seeing uh, gold demand there extremely strong. And in fact, if you look at the so-called Shanghai premium, uh, the, pri- the premium of uh, gold in uh, largest supply to its retail markets in, in, in China, over and above the uh, London Bullion Markets Association, LBMA uh, prices of here, that has actually hit record highs. 
So um, there's huge strengths in some parts of the world, um, but I guess um, in, in in our part of the world, it's, it's looking a bit weaker. And obviously, if you look at gold in dollar terms, it's looking quite weak. When you convert it into yen terms, it's actually close to all-time highs. Um, and um, you know, in, in, even in euro terms, it's not doing so badly um, because you know, once you take that currency effect out. But the bond headwinds right now are looking like um, you know uh, something quite meaningful. The question is, uh, will that turn around? And if you look at consensus, um, where most economists are expecting um, bond yields to go over the next year, they're supposed to ease off. Um, you know, we'll hit close to 5% uh, on the 10-year earlier this week. Um, but by uh, middle of you know next year, we're thinking you know the consensus is t- talking about uh, closer to three percent. So that that will be meaningfully uh, positive for for gold prices. Consensus is also expecting um, a depreciation in 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 the dollar as well. So that should be good for gold. Um, if all these things happen, uh, my models are indicating by Q3 2024, we should have gold prices of around 2,130-ish. That will be an all-time new high um, in nominal terms, not in real terms, but in nominal terms. Um, So that's good. Um, What do we think? I mean, I think, you know, we believe in this higher for longer um, uh, narrative that, you know, central banks will keep rates higher. That will probably, you know, keep bond yields relatively high, but we do think they're going to ease from these levels. Right now, we're probably at peak pain threshold uh, for, uh, for for the bond market, and that, that, that needs to ease off um, over the coming months. So really, what I mean, the story here is that the bond market is very much in the driving seat when it comes to precious metals, because we're seeing silver also selling off at the moment. And is that presumably the same same impact as we're seeing in the gold market? Yeah, it's very much the same. I mean, the, the, the gold-silver correlation is generally very strong, you know, 80% correlation between the two. Uh, when you're seeing a big move in gold markets, you tend to see that big move mirrored out in, into silver. Um, silver often acts with a bit of a lag. So, you know, you see gold move first and then silver follow. Um, but what we do expect is that... Um, as the you know as it progresses we are quite late into the economic cycle and commodities in general are um uh you know they're late, late cycle performers um so we've seen that already in apart from the, 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 the little pullback in oil over the last couple of weeks um so all prices rally uh, we expect that metal industrial type of metal prices will also uh, rally as well and therefore silver which has a bit more industrial traits has the potential to possibly outperform uh, gold assuming that we can maintain um, relatively healthy economic outcomes obviously what's going on in the bond market right now is causing a lot of creating a lot of questions around that and uh, moving on to another commodity that maybe is less influenced by the bond market, and that's the natural gas market. Um, I mean, if you look at that one, uh, I mean, certainly if you've been following it over the last sort of two or three years, we saw that massive rally in natural gas prices um, when the Russians invaded Ukraine. Uh, that created a lot of volatility, some very high natural gas prices. 
um, then um, over the last winter, it has surprisingly, as, as we moved into the spring of this year, the, the price has really dropped. And certainly my part of my, my impression of that was a lot of governments have been filling their natural gas storage facilities to the absolute brink um, in anticipation of the next winter because they don't want to be caught on the hop like they were in uh, February 2022. Um, do you think, is that what's happening? Is it just the fact that everyone's just been buying like mad and now everyone's got enough gas? Um, appreciate that that the market in natural gas has been relatively range-bound over the summer months, but we are now moving into the winter. So do you think we can expect some more action in that space? Yeah, great question. And um, it's worth just you know putting a bit of context here that... Uh, natural gas markets across the world are really fragmented. It's not like the oil markets where we can talk about, you know, one couple of benchmark prices like WTI and and, and Brent largely, you know, representing the world uh, got oil prices. Um, when it comes to natural gas, um, huge price differences across different regions. Um, you've got the Henry Hub contract in the US which is the most liquid um, and most traded uh, contract, the most accessible for investors. So that's where we tend to focus on in terms of prices. But um, here in Europe, uh, there's the uh, title title transfer uh, contract, which is you know at least five times the price of uh, the Henry Cup contract. And obviously, uh, Europe has been at the epicenter of this energy crisis that started off with the uh, Ukraine war uh, last year. Now, the Ukraine war last year sent gas prices in, in Europe up 50-fold. Um, it was, it was a, you know, hugely um, influential on, on that. And it had a knock-on impact on the uh, U.S. Um, uh, prices because U- U.S. gas can be exported through uh, liquefied natural gas to other markets. Um, it's not that easy as going through pipelines, um, and that's why you have these big uh, price differentials, but um, it can be. So that, that's why we saw that big knock-on impact onto Henry Hub uh, last year. But when we came to the winter of last year, um, it turned out we were extremely lucky. Um, Europe had a very mild winter, and didn't need anywhere near as much natural gas um, as was expected, and prices came crashing. And then they c- crashed further in into this year because uh, the European um, Union has been building out a lot more storage facilities and filling those storage facilities to really high levels. Their target was get to get them 90% full, and they kind of met that target a couple of months early. So we're sitting here right now on the brink of uh, winter with lots of natural gas in all the storage facilities around Europe. Um, and so we're in a relatively good place. You know, that, That's why natural gas prices are lower right now than they were even before the Ukraine war started. But it is, we're not without risk. Um, you know, the flow of natural gas from Russia into um, EU has trickled down to zero. So you have to rely on all this on this inventory. If you have a cold weather spike, that would run down the inventory very, very quickly. Now, weather forecasting is one very difficult thing to do. Um, beyond a couple of weeks, it's very hard to, to make those forecasts. Um, so, uh, you know, there is that risk of a cold weather snap. 
maybe less likely because we are in what was called an El Nino weather pattern and we are seeing some warming um, as a result of that. So the winter is more likely to be warmer than it is to be colder than normal. But once again, weather is a hard thing to, to, to predict. Um, also, we may see a little bit of softening of demand if the if the economy is, um, you know, if, if the effects of all this monetary policy is, is taking effect and we start to see the economy slow down. So we're probably going to see enough um, natural gas uh, supply um, and, and sort of plentiful um, uh, supply to, to meet demand. But once again, weather could 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 change the, the cards uh, pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, looking, I'm just looking at the pricing of the um, Henry Hub um, from uh, so basically over most of 2022. In fact, when it hit ten dollars, um, investors looking for that. I mean, my and this is just me, but it sounds to me like they're probably going to be disappointed this winter. They're not going to see anything like those kind of those kind of highs, even if we have really cold weather. Prices could rise, um, and cold weather snaps generally um, are, you know, are, are the catalyst for those spikes. Um, but it becomes a quite a tactical move, right? It becomes like, okay, a weather event is happening, then uh, the price will go higher. Whether that price will remain sustainably higher is another question. Um, and I think with the US also on the supply side, supply is quite strong um uh, for 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 natural gas um a lot of the um shale oil fields are actually getting a lot more gassy <laughs> so when you're trying to pull out oil from the the ground uh, you're getting a lot more gas um coming coming out of that which is coming into the supply uh, stream um also while there is all this demand for liquefied natural gas from Europe uh, and Asia um, and the U.S. is a, obviously a big supplier of that and is expanding its LNG um, export capabilities. It's not expanding fast enough. And therefore, a lot of the natural gas is being trapped in the U.S. and therefore weighing down on the Henry Hub price as well. So a couple of, you know, a couple of, couple of bearish aspects there. Um, but once again, cold weather snaps that could drive prices higher, but very much a, a tactical move there. And now I just wanted to uh, talk a little bit about the um, agricultural commodities markets um, and a couple of ones that, that we've been following um, here at Armchair Trader. One was the the wheat futures prices. Um, there was obviously, again, Ukraine war and the fact that Ukraine's a big uh, wheat producer did drive prices up. Um, but... Um, you know, if you're looking at the, the course of wheat prices more recently, there seems to be a steady downward trend. Certainly, um, Chicago wheat futures are have been gradually slumping since the end of July. Um, what's what's your observation there? What's causing that? Yeah, so um, obviously, putting back in context, last year was the year when um, the war, war took place, and the, you know. Uh, Russia, Ukraine, the the bread bowl of uh, of, of Europe, uh, breadbasket of Europe. Uh, they produce huge amounts of wheat, corn, um, all the oil seeds. Uh, prices rose substantially there, um, but now this year we are seeing actually 
supply surprises on the upside. Um, you know, US has had uh, a good crop yield, uh, but also so has Russia, and Russia has been able to export that into the global markets, even though uh, Ukraine may be struggling um, because, you know, its grain deal uh, with Russia uh, has come to an end. So getting the passage of grains out of Ru Ukraine is difficult. Um, it's not so difficult for Russia and Russia's, you know, flooding the market with its uh, bumper crop. And the US is also um, producing, uh, produced a lot. And um, that is weighing uh, on, on US prices. And obviously the Chicago contract is uh, probably, you know, US production is probably more influential on the Chicago contract than production even elsewhere. Um, same sort of problems with corn, um, a lot more production uh, than was uh, anticipated. I think earlier this year, you know, people were really worried about lower yields, um, but those worries are somewhat misplaced and uh, we are seeing uh, those yields uh, actually, you know, reverse and uh, actually look pretty strong. Once again, um, we're not really, you know, the El Nino weather phenomenon that I mentioned earlier on uh, is very influential on the agricultural space. Um, and, you know, even though we may be seeing a nice harvest, uh, not, not a nice sort of crop uh, that's in the ground uh, that's been produced, um, there is the risk that during the harvest period, um, the weather could turn. And so a good crop on, on the ground may not be able to be picked in a timely manner um, to, you know, to, to full effectiveness because of possibly excess rain, for example. Um, and that may be brought, out, brought about by the El Nino weather phenomenon. So, you know, it's not a done deal that, you know, that the, the, the good yields of the crops um, will, will permanently bring down the price uh, for, the, for, this, uh, for, for this season. Um, there is still weather risk out there that uh, a good crop in the ground may not get harvested. And speaking of El Nino and weather risk, I mean, has that had a contributory factor in the cocoa price? Because cocoa, if you're looking for some upside in the agri-commodity space, cocoa has had a very good run of it, actually, this year, with the price really only peaking beginning of September and starting to come off a bit since then. But certainly when we were looking at the price, you, know, you, could, have, you could have ridden that that story all the way from April and made some made some decent money on it. What's been the what's been the driver there? Yeah, so um, there is a lot of supply concentration uh, for cocoa. West Africa represents you know close to seventy percent of uh, all um, cocoa production, and um, you know there's been supply concerns from there. So if you look at the Ivory Coast, um, it's um, exports uh, last month declined about ten percent. Um, you've seen a, a big spread of this swollen, sh swollen shoot virus uh, from the country. Um, and weather uh, hasn't been uh, particularly cooperative. And obviously, a lot of that is due to this El Nino weather phenomenon. Um, the virus has been able to excel um, with, with this adverse uh, weather uh, conditions in, in, in the Ivory Coast and, and in, in West Africa in general. So... Um, you know, I think you know cocoa has been uh, cocoa supply has been um, has been affected by El Nino, but it's not just cocoa. We see sugar. Um, you know, sugar prices rose uh, more than ten percent last month um, on the back of uh, 
um, these extreme uh, weather conditions. And also coffee as well is, uh, has, has, seen some, has seen some gains. Now, El Nino tends to impact the tropical regions a bit more. And obviously these softs, cocoa, sugar, and coffee tend to be uh, more concentrated in, in so-called tropical regions, uh, more so than grains. And that probably explains the little dichotomy between why grain prices have been falling while the softs have been uh, rising over this period. Um, you know, sugar is um, obviously of, of, of key interest, and once again, you've got supply concentrations in the uh, in the cane as well, uh, with Brazil being a, a large producer, uh, but also um, uh, you know India being an extremely large uh, producer. Um, India is considering putting a an export ban on its uh, uh, sugar exports uh, because of a relatively um, low uh, crop uh, this year. And India goes sometimes from being, even though India is one of the biggest producers of, of, uh, of sugar, it's a large consumer itself. And so it goes from some years of being a net exporter to some years of being a net importer. And if it puts an export ban in place, it's you know more likely to tip on being a net importer uh, this year to fill its own uh, its own uh, sugar needs. So, um, yeah, quite quite a few areas of strength there. Once again, driven by this weather phenomenon. And I'm I'm aware we're running out of time, but I wanted to just also touch on industrial metals because this is an area where where you have also um, ETFs tracking industrial metal prices. Um, what's the what's the situation there? I know that obviously there's big worries about potential slowdown in the in the global economy. Again, maybe slackening of demand from China. Um, how are you seeing that over the winter? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. You know, China is probably the the key concern because it is the largest metal consumer. Um, so that weakness that we've seen so far hasn't been encouraging, but the stimulus that we seems to now seem to be. Uh, taking effect on the on the economy is is a reason to be somewhat more optimistic, but also China is using this period op- opportunistically as well. Um, with the relatively weak uh, copper prices that we've seen, it has been excelling its um, uh, grid expenditure. So the you know in, on electrifying its uh, it, it's 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 its grid uh, or, or improving its grid to be able to take on more. Uh, electrification, especially of vehicles, um, is spending a lot more money on on copper. Um, I think that's uh, something that's going under the radar at the moment because if you look at where copper prices are trading, it's just based on traditional macro um, indicators. And if you take traditional macro indicators, you think that China's demand for copper should be going down heavily. It isn't. It's quite flat and it, in fact it's somewhat increasing because of its uh, diversion towards uh, grid expenditure. Um, so we may end this year. Um, the International Copper Study Group, which met this week, is maintained a deficit forecast for this year. Um, so uh, supply of refined copper will be less uh, than the uh, demand for it. And we're still continuing to eat above ground inventory, and inventory is is falling quite quite substantially relative to uh, five year average. Um, so you know, copper we see some strength, uh, but where we see strength in the metal market is a bit more of a longer term story. It's because metals are so instrumental in the energy transition uh, that we're likely to see. Um, so I talked about China electrifying 
all other countries need to do, make that electrification leap as well if they are to meet their uh, net zero targets. Um, and the you know the vehicles um, that are used, you know, to electric vehicles, which will um, uh, surpass uh, internal combustion engine vehicle sales in due course. Um, they are significantly more metal intense um, in the in the creation of the vehicles as well. So we're very optimistic on uh, you know, nickel, uh, lithium, uh, cobalt, and as you uh, point out, our products cover uh, some of these as well. We have an energy transition basket with uh, lithium and cobalt in them, which is uh, very unique. And we, why right now this short-term uh, oversupply in lithium and cobalt, we expect that to turn around to a massive deficit uh, you know, within the coming years. And um, obviously, if you're looking for long-term plays, um, they look very interesting. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much indeed for your time today, Nitesh. That's been really informative. Um, certainly a lot for investors to look at in the commodities markets over the next three months or so. And thanks for thanks for all these in, these insights. It's been really valuable. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me on the show. You've been listening to the Armchair Trader podcast. Make sure you visit our website, www.thearmchairtrader.com for your daily dose of financial markets news and sign up to our free newsletter there.